I'd invite you this morning to take a Bible with me and turn to the epistle text for today, which again comes from 2 Corinthians. Today we are in 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, verses 7 through 15. And as you find that in your Bible, if you're in the room with us and able, if you would stand with me in honor of the Lord's word, 2 Corinthians 8, 7 through 15. Paul writes this. Be the best in this work of grace in the same way that you are the best in everything, such as faith, speech, knowledge, total commitment, and the love we inspired in you. I'm not giving an order, but by mentioning the commitment of others, I'm trying to prove the authenticity of your love also. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, he became poor for our sakes so that you could become rich through his poverty. I'm giving you my opinion about this. It's to your advantage to do this since you not only started to do it last year, but you wanted to do it too. Now finish the job as well so that you finish it with as much enthusiasm as you started given what you can afford. A gift is appreciated because of what a person can afford, not because of what that person can't afford. If it's apparent that it's done willingly, It isn't that we want others to have financial ease and you financial difficulties, but it's a matter of equality. At the present moment, your surplus can fill their deficit so that in the future, their surplus can fill your deficit. In this way, there is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered more didn't have too much, and the one who gathered less didn't have too little. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So if you're a guest with us this morning, um, or you have been with us a long time and you haven't figured this out yet, um, most Sunday mornings we follow what's called the lectionary. Um, It is an old list of texts that comes in a three-year cycle, and what it does is it gives us a psalm text, an Old Testament text, a gospel text, and an epistle text for each Sunday. And we've been following that for a few years now, in part because I'm convinced that that one of the ways that we're shaped spiritually is through keeping time in certain kinds of ways. Um, But I love, as a pastor and as the person who preaches most Sundays, to get to kind of explore the texts that are given to us. I don't just get to pick my favorite texts. I I think I've shared with you before one of my favorite gifts my family gave to me uh, was my grandfather's preaching Bible. But when you open it up, um, I I hope you can get to heaven without having read Leviticus because it still has the new Bible smell in it. Um, and the Gospel of John just falls on the ground and is held together with rusty paper clips. But when I look at his Bible, and I love my grandfather, but you could tell he moved about every 18 months and switched churches because he was out of sermons. He just preached his favorite parts and moved on. Um, and so part of what I love about the lectionary is it forces me to go to a text like today that I would guess most people would just kind of skip over. It's kind of a strange text. But part of what that means also is then I get asked every once in a while, Pastor, why don't you preach on, and you can fill in the blank, why don't you preach on relationships? Which my answer is usually, I don't know anything about them. Um, (laughs) Why don't you preach on parenting? Or why don't you preach, like, when are you going to preach on X, Y, or Z? And often, and this is usually board members, when are you going to preach on giving, right? Um, And my answer is always the same. Because we follow the lectionary, I can say, when the scripture gets to it. And so this morning, I get to talk about generosity because the scripture got to it. 
And this is the wonderful thing. You may not feel this way, but I feel this is a wonderful thing. I have no agenda today. We're going to talk about giving and generosity, and I'm not, I don't feel like I'm trying to raise money for anything today. This is not a setup. This is an invitation to a particular kind of life. And let me say, while I'm on that subject, um, thank you. Um, it has been a strange 18 months or so, and it's still kind of strange. Um, we're not all back yet. Um, most studies of churches say that, and we're a reflection of this, only about 60 or 65% of folks have felt comfortable to come back. Uh, some of you have joined us online today. Thank you. Um, but there's a reality, too, given kind of the unsettledness of the last 18 months or so. Most churches are experiencing about 30% of the people who were with them before COVID now that they're out of the habit, either have decided we're not going to go back to church, at least regularly, or we're going to go, <laughs> we've been thinking about trying another church for a long time, and let's, this is our chance to do that. And, and that has affected us, and we've also been blessed by that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just kind of a, a reality. But in the midst of all of that turbulence, I want to say to you, thank you for the way that you've continued to be generous and give as a congregation. For all the we miss a lot of people seeing them face to face. You have been so um, so generous in the ways that you have continued to give to God. Um, and that has been a blessing to us. Um, but let me also say um, that we are in the midst of uh, this transformation in the sanctuary over at College Church and why we're here for the next several weeks still. And... Uh, and, you know, it's been nice in the wisdom of the board and kind of conversations. When I got here six years or, or so ago, um, we began to kind of hit the debt, and some of you leaned in and kind of gave extra each year, and we were able to reduce that down. And it just seemed wise, um, given what we wanted to do, the sanctuary, and that we had, we're, by the way, if you don't know this, we're redoing the entire roof over on the college church facility. Um, we're able to do that, and, and we even did it this week. We refinanced all of that debt, and our monthly payment will be less than it has been. Um, but it even gives us the opportunity to begin to kind of hit that again. And without having to, for me to kind of try to raise a whole bunch of money and, and do all that, and, and in this moment, um, if the Lord leads you to write a check to pay off that whole amount, let the Lord speak to you. Um, <laughs> But it's been nice, especially given these last 18 months and the uncertainty economically for us to be able to do that in that way and for us to continue the mission and ministry that we're, being, we're doing. And, and let me say one other thing about that, um, because every once in a while, um, somebody will say, in fact, just recently, somebody who is older said to me in a kind of grumpy way, um, well, we're the group that pays all the bills around here. And I always want to say to you, oh, no, you're not. Um, that is true in a lot of churches. That is not true here. One of the beauties of pastoring this congregation is the way giving is consistent across generations. In fact, if you want to know a secret, if the 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds in this room left, we would be in trouble as a church. That doesn't mean I'm incredibly grateful for those of you who are 60, 70, 80, 90. And I have learned this, and we're learning it now. As our children leave, we have more disposable income. Uh. <laughs> And some of those investments come back, and, and it's helping us be more gener generous than maybe we were able to be before. Um, but I just want to say to you as your pastor, I'm just so grateful for, for all the generations who are learning generosity. So all that to say, there is no agenda in this message today other than this is what Paul wanted to talk about.
And so this morning, as, as we think about generosity, I want to think with you about generosity as a virtue. So some of you know my doctorate is in ethics, and so I love to think about virtue and ethics. And this is really important. Generosity is a, a virtue that we are able to develop. And because it's a virtue, Aristotle tells us, virtues are kind of hard to find. Because virtues are usually the means between two extremes. So for example, generosity is not the opposite of stinginess. Actually, the opposite of stinginess is a word called prodigality, taken from the story of the prodigal son, where you just take all the resources you have and just throw them all away. That's the opposite of stinginess. Generosity is actually a life that understands the significance of resource, but is lived in such a way that those resources aren't hoarded, but those resources are thoughtfully and properly shared with those around us. Are, are you with me? And that's not just true of generosity. We could think about courage. Courage is not the opposite of fearfulness or timidity. Um, the opposite of timidity is foolhardiness, where you just go charging into any battle, not even thinking about it. Courage is the mean between those extremes. Now, here's why that is kind of important. As Aristotle would say, that makes them really hard to find. The two extremes are really easy to find and really easy to live into. That's why most of us can probably find ways to be stingy pretty easily or find ways to be a prodigal pretty easily. But generosity is actually a very difficult life to develop. It's a virtue, not a vice. Vices are easy, virtues are difficult. But this morning, if you'll hang with me for just a little bit, one of the things that's important about virtue is that in the end, as much as principles and rules can be important in illustrating and kind of understanding what a virtuous life looks like, in the end, principles and rules are not very good at developing virtue in us. Let me say that again. As helpful as principles and rules can be for especially when we're young, instructing us in what the virtuous life kind of looks like, in the end, principles and rules are not very good at developing in us the kind of virtuous life that we ought to seek. So if you have the text still open, let me give you a little bit of context into it. Paul is taking an offering. And he's taking an offering for the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem that has fallen into significant hardship. Uh, they've been marginalized from the primary Jewish community because of their Christian faith. They are facing all sorts of uncertainty economically in Jerusalem. There is all sorts of hardship that the church is facing and they are really in desperate need. And so Paul, the setting of this text is that Paul is raising an offering in the churches that he has started. He's taking up a collection that he is going to then send back to Jerusalem so that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem can be blessed and because they're in need. Now, sometime this week, read the beginning of chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians. The first six verses are about this. Paul is saying, wow, the church in Macedonia took an offering. And not just an offering. They may have taken three or four offerings. And they passed the plates, and they have been collecting money, and honestly, this is my paraphrase of the first six verses, Paul's saying, honestly, they're not that impressive of a church between you and me. They're kind of bore. They never order out. It's always potluck dinners. 
They don't dress that great when they come to church. None of the camels have racing stripes out in the parking lot. They're kind of a poor church. But what's crazy is they raised an unbelievable offering that just demonstrates the kind of generosity that has become, been developing the, in them as a community. I'm just shocked at how generous Macedonia has been. Now let's talk about you, Corinth. The problem Paul is having in Corinth is that the Corinthians, about a year prior to this letter, it appears, began to take an offering for the Jewish church in Jerusalem. But they got into it and they began to think, you know, we have a lot of needs around here. What have they ever done for us? Do we even like Paul that much anyway? And for a number of reasons, it appears they've begun to decide they don't really want to take up that offering anymore. And so Paul is using Macedonia as this example. But you could go through this passage and you could pull out principles. And I tried to do that this week to say, if I was going to preach a sermon on here are the four things that start with the letter P on how to be generous. Here are the rules you need to follow. They would be something like this. Paul says, do everything well. Do everything well. Finish what you started. My mother used to tell, still tells me that. What you put in, Paul is essentially saying, you will get out. I mean, he says to them, you kind of have resources now and they have none, but the day may come when you are short on resources and they have resources. And so in some ways, you know, what comes around goes around. What you put in, you may get out. If you go back to verse 7 for a second, he's saying, you are good. So you should do good stuff. If you look at verse 7 one more time with me, it's kind of funny. Paul writes this church that he can't stand. Be the best in the work of grace in the same way that you are the best in everything, <laughs> such as faith, speech, knowledge, total commitment, and the love we inspired in you. There's some scholars who think Paul's being sarcastic, and so we should read this as, oh, yeah, you're the best. I actually think he's doing what Debbie and I have tried to do to our kids, which is lie to them. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. As we've raised them, I, I think I've told you the story multiple times. When Debbie was pregnant with Caleb, we were in a Walmart, and there was a, a woman who had a, a young child in the cart, and he was pulling things off the shelf. And she, was, she had just lost it. She'd had enough. And um, she was yelling at him, you are such a brat. My life was so much better before you came along. Like, she was just like, have it. And I just remember Debbie looked at me. She goes, let's never do that to our kids, right? And it's not that they haven't pulled things off the shelf at Walmart or done other things we didn't uh, appreciate. But we've tried to do this. As they pull things off the, off the shelves in Walmart, we've tried to say, Caleb, you are a good boy, right? And good boys do not pull things off the shelf in Walmart. Noah, you are a smart child, and smart children do all their homework, right? Like, we, this is why we've, we've, we've tried to bluff them into being good. I think that's probably what Paul is doing. He's probably not all that convinced they're that great, but he's trying to say to them, oh, you're so good. <laughs> Between you and me, I haven't had to do this with you. Wink, wink, nod, nod. But there's some other congregations where I've said, you are a generous people. Um, <laughs> never mind. You are so good at taking care of your pastor. Um, but here's the thing. Paul, I mean, we could pull these principles out and say, yeah, what you put in, you get out. This is the way... Back to virtue. 
Principles are good at saying this is kind of what generosity looks like, but principle and rule is not good at actually developing the virtue within us. And I say that because I have found this to be true. There are people that I have experienced, and sometimes I have embodied this in my own life, who have lived a form of generosity out of a kind of principle. And by the way, I promise you, I will never preach on giving or generosity in a way that says, if you put this in, God will give you this back. I won't say it. And not because I don't think God is generous, but because that's a terrible way to try to form generosity in you, because you're not actually being generous. You're trying to make a good investment. And what happens when you have learned to be generous by principle, you aren't actually generous. And so what happens is you come into a leader, let's say a pastor's office, and you say, or you write me a letter and say, the tithe comes back when X happens, right? It becomes a kind of principle that says, I'm not, I'm giving this and I'm not getting what I want out of it. And so I'm not giving it anymore until I get that back out. Which, by the way, is not generosity. And, and let me say to you, what is true of us as individuals is actually true of us as a church and an organization also. Um, I don't know if you know this, but we, uh, well, I'll come back to this in a minute, but um, I'm oftentimes in uh, meetings with pastors of larger churches in the denomination, and we will say these things. We will say, we're giving X amount of money to the denomination. What am I getting out of this? What are we getting back in return, right? Um, or I'm with people who will say, I'm not giving to the university because the university isn't doing what the university, right? Um, I, was, I was in a meeting and, and they're used to me doing this now, but my head exploded because the conversation was, we were talking about our, our connectionalism to other churches in our tradition as though what we were giving were franchise fees. And the question literally was, what are we getting in return for this investment, right? And I said, you know what? I have never asked that about my children. Well, out loud. I have never sat down and really calculated what the four of those kids have cost, right? Because it was never, <laughs> we didn't have them in order for something to be returned, right? And so you, we can't operate with that kind of, because that's not generosity, that's a kind of principled living that is operated by rules, and when those rules aren't enacting the way that we want them to do, we don't understand how to live them. Are you with me? So what, how do we develop virtue? So if you're taking notes, here are the two, two cool ideas today. Virtue and character is formed by two things. Practices and a particular story or way of understanding the world. Those are the two most important things. Practices and a kind of story or way of understanding the world. So when Paul is talking about this, he is trying to develop in them practices and an understanding of a truthful story that should shape and inform the way they imagine and understand their lives in the world. 
So Paul wants them to participate in the practice of giving to the Jerusalem church. And I think he wants them to participate in that practice for a number of reasons. First of all, as they participate in that practice, here's what's happening. They are recognizing we're not in this alone. Thanks be to God, the sum total of the church of God, the church of Christ in the world, is not housed in Nampa at Nampa College Church. Thanks be to God. Thank you for only one amen. But, that, but this is not the sum total of the kingdom, right? And Paul's wanting to say, listen, Corinthian church, I love you, kind of, but you're not the sum total. And so in participating in this giving and participating in this offering, you're recognizing your solidarity with sisters and brothers in Christ, in Jerusalem, Macedonia, in Galatia, Ephesus. And as you participate in this practice, it's erasing dividing walls. And this is very important. It's the race, erasing the dividing walls between Jews and Gentiles. It is very likely that part of the reason the Corinthians were kind of apprehensive about giving this offering was because it was going to Jewish Christians. And the Gentile church was experiencing its own kind of unsettledness from Jewish people in communities. And that dividing wall had been very strong for generations. And Paul is saying, as we participate in this practice, we're going to tear down that wall between Jew and Gentile. And we are perhaps participating even in a practice that will develop reconciliation. Because don't forget, the heads of the Jerusalem church are Peter and James. And if you read Acts and a few of Paul's other letters, there are some fun meetings between Peter, James, and Paul. In fact, some meetings I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at. And there's some speculation that they respected each other, but strongly at times disagreed with each other and had different visions for what the church ought to be doing in the world. And this act of participation may very well be not just with people who are very different than us, but maybe with people who operate missionally in the world very different with us, so that when Paul says we've been given the act or the ministry of reconciliation, this offering is very much embodying the reconciliation between Paul and James and Peter. You see, it's not a principle. It's not, if you do this, you'll get this out, Corinth. But as if you participate in this practice, as the Macedonians are and as these other churches are, something is going to be shaped in you and in the world. That's a practice. Now, across Christian history, Christians have encouraged followers of Jesus to participate in the Jewish practice in the Old Testament of tithing. For most of Christian history, it's been fairly consistent that one of the practices, not principles, but practices that Christians would participate is to take a tenth of everything that we earn and raise and give that back to the community of faith and participate in that. Now that practice does some amazing things in us. And I'm really grateful that when I was a little boy, my mom and dad helped teach me and form me in the practice. My first allowance, I think, was $5 a week, and 50 cents of it went in the offering plate. Now, that practice has done a lot for me in this sense. 
It has helped me recognize that everything I have is gift. None of it is mine. I'm a steward of it for a time only. It's a practice that has put my heart squarely in the church. Now let me tell you, it hasn't been just my heart that's been in the church. I didn't have a lot of choices. My rear end was there all the time too. (laughs) My whole body was in church. But I will say, I don't want to have a sense of manipulation or a sense of entitlement, but there is a sense in which part of my deep passion and heart for the church is there is a lot invested for me personally in terms of giving involved in the life of the church. And where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And that's an important part of the practice. But it's a cool practice in the sense that it creates a kind of community in which it is not equal gifts that are required of us. So by the way, in the church, there's not an entrance fee. The gym we belong to charges everybody the same. But in the church, it is not equal gifts, but it is equal sacrifice. And there is a sense then of belonging, community, and connection that comes out of that practice. Just quickly, a little caveat there. Tithing was not the only economic code that Israel participated in. So it wasn't like we gave 10% and we're done with it. They participate in practices like Sabbath and sabbatical years. They practice gleaning where they made sure there was some set aside for outsiders and aliens and sojourners to receive what they wanted. Without getting too complicated, I would also say uh, ancient Jewish people could not imagine the disparity in wealth that we have in our modern age. So let me just cause trouble and say, for example, someone who makes $10,000 a year and ties $1,000 a year is making an equal sacrifice, kind of, to the person who makes $100,000 a year and ties $10,000 a year, but the person who makes a million dollars a year and ties $100,000 a year, those are, in a sense, equal sacrifices, but in a sense, in our modern disparity of wealth, it's not equal sacrifice. For like the widow's might, the person who makes 10000 and gives 1000 only gets to live on 9000 a year, where the person who makes a million and gives $100,000 gets a building named after them, but they still get to live on $900,000. And so the practice is not, we need to be careful not to just simply make the practice, again, another principle but recognize what the practice is trying to do for us. And I will say this too, because this affects us as a church. As we give back, and for those of you who don't know this, as a church, everything that's given to the church, 5.5% of that goes to what we call the World Evangelism Fund for the sake of missions in the church of the Nazarene. 2.5% goes to education, in our case, to Northwest Nazarene University. 2% goes to care of the, the women and men who've led us in ministry, kind of caring for our fathers and mothers spiritually, if you will. Another 4% goes through our district, so about 14%. When you're a church like us, that's about 200 grand plus that we give away without even kind of thinking about it. I mean, we give it as a practice. But I want to say, when I pastored kind of smaller church or was part of smaller churches that had smaller income, it didn't seem quite as big to give that away. 
And so one of the challenges as you become wealthier is you realize, oh man, that's a lot of money to give to one place. And you begin to think, well, maybe we should just divide that up, right? And so you have this sense in which the practice, in some ways, we end up getting, failing to participate in the ways the practice is trying to help us to lean into. Are you with me? And so the practice matters. But so does the truthful story. And here's the truthful story. Take your Bible still. Go with me to the last verse. Verse 15. Paul says, as it is written, the one who gathered more didn't have too much and the one who gathered less didn't have too little. There's a good chance in your Bible there's a footnote there that takes you down to a text. And so I just want to emphasize again, it is not my fault that Exodus is getting mentioned this morning. This is Paul's fault. Paul is saying, don't forget, we're part of a truthful story, and that truthful story that goes all the way back to my ancestors, Paul says, is a story about how we were in the wilderness and God is generous. And God was trying to teach us what I, a line I've stolen from Walter Brueggemann and used with you several times. We are trying to learn in the wilderness to move away from the myth of scarcity that there is not enough and move towards what is called the liturgy of abundance. But the crazy thing is we learn that in the wilderness where there actually is nothing and we should sing the myth of scarcity. But God in his goodness provides manna. And the verse that Paul is quoting is this, each day the people went out and gathered the manna and then an omer was given to each family. And what they discovered in the wilderness is if you didn't hoard things in your storehouses, Pharaoh, there actually is enough for everyone in the liturgy of God's goodness. And the reason I mention that so often is because for Paul, that is part of the truthful story you and I have to live out of. For we are constantly taught the myth of scarcity, but we are a people who gather each week to sing, pray, live, dream, imagine in God's liturgy of abundance. But the second part of that story, and this is the really important one, so go back, and if you have it, underline verse 9, underline verse 9, because this is the kind of the bomb Paul drops in the middle of this text. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, he became poor for our sakes so that you could become rich through his poverty. A few weeks ago, I, I started a podcast just to kind of get to talk to some of my friends out there, especially in the kind of theological world. I was talking to a friend of mine, Tim, who teaches at Treveca, um, and we were talking uh, about totemism, about this sociological idea that oftentimes people create religious religions, but those religions turn out to simply be reflections of our own values and virtues. So we create totems that embody things we wish our children were because they're kind of like us. And, and so Tim was talking about how he teaches totemism in his classes, and he talks about how it, what he does is he has, and you can do this this, this week, he has the students right there live in class, they Google God, the word God and do a Google search and then press images to see what are the images of God. And, and what you get 
is kind of God from movies, so you get Morgan Freeman and George Burns if you're old enough. Um, but most of the images of God that you get are an old guy with long white hair, right, and a long beard. But the crazy thing about this old guy is he's not like any other old guy in this room. He is ripped, right? Like it's this image of this old guy who is the embodiment in our imagination of both kind of wisdom, maybe masculinity, but too, but wisdom and strength. And then Tim says, what I do is I Google Zeus and show them how those images of God are almost identical to Zeus in our imaginations. But he said, what I do then is I put that picture of God up on the wall and I put a picture of the crucified Jesus next to it. And say, at the end of the day, the Christian story does not tell a story about a God who looks like Zeus. But here's what Paul is saying. In fact, he may be quoting an early church hymn. Do not forget what you know to be the good news. That the one who had all power and authority, resource, wealth, might, glory, to claim as his own, gave it all up and took on our shame and our sin and distributed that love and that goodness and that mercy and that grace in unending liturgy of abundance kinds of ways so it will never run out, but there is an overflowing of grace and mercy and goodness and resource that comes from the crucified Christ because he has given it all up, Paul says, so that you could receive that and become people yourselves filled with goodness and mercy and love. But not so you could hoard it, but so that you could give it as a reflection of the crucified one. We didn't read the Old Testament text today. It was long. But quickly, it's from 2 Samuel chapter 1. You can read it this week. It's about the death of Saul. Saul dies in battle. Jonathan dies with him. And Amalekite, who's the one who killed Saul, comes to David to say, hey, David, good news. He's dead. The Amalekite thinks that the world is a zero-sum game. Where if Saul had power, David didn't. And now in some sense, the Amalekite took the power from Saul and is now giving it to David and is hoping he'll get a little bit of that back too. The rest of 2 Samuel chapter 1, though, is a lament that David sings. Because if life is a zero-sum game, David should be rejoicing because the one who had been chasing him and persecuting him and acting like this is a zero-sum game, where if David gets glory, it must be taken from Saul. So Saul has to be jealous of David. David sings this beautiful lament. I'll paraphrase it this way. Oh, Saul. Israel was big enough for both of us. The world had a good, enough goodness and graciousness and resource for us both. And how tragic it is when we live lives that embody the myth of scarcity. 
And Paul wants to say how beautiful it is when we not only know that story, but we practice and embody what it means to reflect the generosity and goodness of Jesus. By the way, if you're listening well, this is a holiness sermon. It sounds like the kind of sermon where we should now pass the offering plates, but it's actually a sermon about holiness. Because the good news about virtue, like generosity, is we can always grow into it. People are born generous or not. Some of us have been in circumstances or maybe we have temperaments that make us a little more possessive and maybe some a little easier to let go. But generosity is not a virtue we have to develop on our own. It is something the Spirit invites us to participate in. And as the Spirit works on us, we find that every part of our life, including the resources of our life, belong to God. That's the holiness part. And we find that we trust more and believe more and we're able to give more and enjoy the abundance of God's goodness in the world. Every pastor's dream, including Paul's, is that you would never have to have a special service again, but that the Spirit would so shape us to be generous that Paul wouldn't have to manipulate the Corinthians to be more like the Macedonians, but the Corinthians would give out of the love that has been given to them and discover the love of God shed abroad in their hearts. God, I thank you today for your word about generosity. And I thank you that it comes to us today at a time where we are not necessarily in need, but at a time when there are great needs all around us. We will not accomplish the mission that you have given to us as a church, especially as we participate, bring down barriers and walls, as we share in this global mission you've given us. We will not do that well if we're just constantly wondering, are they getting more than us? So purify us of our jealousies, our comparisons. Let go of all of the ways the myth of scarcity scares us. And make us not just persons, but make us a people who are generous and good. And who not only know, but who live a liturgy of abundance. Paul so desperately wanted the Corinthians to trust you, to be reflections of you. Your spirit is in this place today not to bring shame or condemnation or guilt. Your spirit is 
here today inviting us to step out and trust, not to follow a principle that says if we give this, we'll get this, but a spirit that's inviting us to practices that will change us and transform us and to live into a story that is so true as we find ourselves in it, we find that we are reflections of that very story itself. So make us holy, make us generous, make us reflections of your people today. May the world see the generosity of your son Jesus in us. For we pray this in his name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's celebrate and sing about the goodness of God.